Everything you know is wrong. Hello and never goodbye, it's me, and I'm with you again to look at the arcane wonders of our wonderful world. Everything you know is wrong. Put your seatbelts on because you're in for a howling ride. I am the narrator, the voice that guides the blind, following up with your ears, but your mind, and allow me to take you back on four through time to explain the significance of things you may think insignificant now, but won't further down the line. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDR. There is nothing wrong with your television set. We are controlling transmission. For the next hour, sit quietly and we will control all that you see and hear. You are about to participate in a great adventure. You are about to experience the awe and mystery which reaches from the inner mind. It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I see God. How do you like that? Why, it's preposterous. Thank you very much. I realize what I'm about to say comes a great shock. However, using great presence of mind, I'm counting on you to respond appropriately. Information in the form of energy streams in, streams in simultaneously through all of our sensory systems in the form of energy. is Richard Lewis Miller. He's been a clinical psychologist for more than 50 years. He's the host of the podcast Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, and he's the founder of the nationally acclaimed Coke Enders Alcohol and Drug Program and the Health Sanctuary at Wilbur Hot Springs in Northern California. He's a former faculty member at the University of Michigan and Stanford University and an advisor on the President's Commission on Mental Health. Richard is the author of Psychedelic Medicine and Psychedelic Wisdom, and his new book that we're going to be talking about is Freeing Sexuality, Sex Workers, 
psychologists, consent teachers, and polyamory experts speak out, which features fascinating interviews with 20 experts in the wide range of sexuality. So Richard, welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you, Tony. I'm glad to be here. First off, I loved this book. Well, thank you. So as the author of Psychedelic Medicine and Psychedelic Wisdom, and now this new book, Freeing Sexuality, what has drawn you to these fascinating and out-of-the-box subjects? Throughout my career, I have investigated out of deep interest areas that have either been neglected, considered taboo, or for some reason, in case of patients, situations where the patients get blamed for their illness. So for example, very early on in my career, it was believed and it still is believed by many that schizophrenia is incurable. So I took a patient out of a mental hospital in Ohio and a social worker flew the patient to San Francisco where my team picked the patient up and brought the patient to live with me at Wilbur Hot Springs. The patient lived with me for two years. When he arrived, he was doing what's called hallucinating, talking, he had nine different characters that he talked to that the rest of us could not see. And he lived in a very different reality. I worked with him for the two years. I asked him to introduce me to each of these characters. I wasn't afraid of his what's called hallucinations. I tried to converse with those characters. I said to him, you know, when Mother Teresa has visions, she's put up for a Nobel Prize. When you have visions, you were put in a mental hospital. We have to figure out another way to work this out for you so you get some benefit from this special ability that you have. Cut to the chase, Tonio. After two years working with me, he left. He got a job at the University of California, Berkeley, got himself a place to live. A few years after that, he got a girlfriend, then he got married, then he had children and living a normal life. So that was an early looking into what is what are we seeing wrong? The next one, of course, was psychedelic medicine. I was introduced to psychedelic medicines while they were legal because I'm that old. I immediately saw the medicinal potential of these psychedelic medicines. As soon as I took them, I took one called MDMA in my therapist's office. I had a fantastic therapy session. I went on to have additional therapy sessions with Dr. Robert Cantor. These sessions helped change the course of my life. I took LSD while it was still legal. I not only saw the benefits of LSD for healing problems of all kinds, but I saw the potential of LSD for being helpful in creativity. Then, of course, years later, we find out that Steve Jobs used LSD. The astrophysicist Carl Sagan used LSD in his discoveries. The originate founders of the DNA molecule 
used LSD for creativity. And so then, of course, came this war on drugs, which really it wasn't a war on drugs. It was a war on people perpetrated by Richard Nixon and his henchmen because they were racist and they connected the black people with cocaine and the hippies with marijuana in order to eradicate them. And so I became part of what were called drug warriors. I worked hard to raise money for organizations to legalize these various substances, but also to foster research because the government's draconian laws virtually stopped research into the psychedelics for over 50 years. So I helped raise money for Normal, the national organization to reform marijuana laws. I helped raise money for the Marijuana Policy Project, the biggest organization of its kind to legalize marijuana in the United States. I also was lucky to serve on the board of directors of the Marijuana Policy Project. I also worked with the Drug Policy Alliance, started by Dr. Ethan Nadelman, to disseminate honest information about psychedelics. From there, many years later, when I started my radio program in the early aughts, about 2004, I was on National Public Radio. The program is Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, which you referred to when you introduced me. And on that program, I did the longest running series on psychedelic medicine that had ever been done in the United States. And I like to think in a small way, I contributed to the national renaissance that's going on in psychedelic medicine now, because it appears that we're making some progress, but we can't be too optimistic because all the psychedelics plus marijuana are still illegal at the federal level, which means at any moment, the government can send people in and arrest people who are doing research or people who are selling marijuana, for example, in California, where recreational marijuana is legal and dispensaries are legal. But they can be all shut down and prosecuted by the federal government. That's the way they live their lives, looking over their shoulders about the possibility of a federal bust. So. That was another area of interest. Another area of interest, human sexuality. Because I know as a professional that our views of human sexuality are distorted. They're distorted and they're causing emotional problems for millions, if not hundreds of millions of people. I believe that our entire public is suffering from what I call hypocrisy-induced neurosis. H-I-N, hypocrisy-induced neurosis. What is that? That is when the leaders of a country tell the people to do one thing, create laws to do that one thing, and then they themselves do the opposite. Examples, evangelical preachers preaching hellfire and brimstone if you go with a prostitute or if you use drugs. And then what do we see? Headlines of famous preachers being caught in bad neighborhoods with hookers and methamphetamine. Hypocrisy-induced neurosis. When congressmen rail against homosexuals, hellfire and brimstone, put them in jail, they say. And then 
you see the same congressman get caught in the public restroom attempting to give a job to the guy in the next stall. This is hypocrisy. And it shakes the people because we look up to these people. And when they do the opposite of what they're getting us to do, when they do things that would maybe get us in jail, our emotions are abrased and distressed. It shakes our belief system. That's hypocrisy-induced neurosis. Furthermore, in the area of human sexuality, I believe we are all suffering from post-traumatic sexual stress disorder, PTSSD, post-traumatic sexual stress disorder. What is that? That is a combination of the hypocrisy, but also of the rules, the rules that religion teaches people. Don't have sex before marriage or you're sinning. All the major religions teach that. I'm not discriminating against any particular one. They all teach it. Christianity, Judaism, Islam. However, the world that we live in, 95% of the people are having sex before marriage. What do you think that does to their psyches? You think they suddenly just free themselves from their original religious training? Or do you think in the back of every one of their minds, they're thinking, maybe I'm doing something wrong. Maybe I'm going to go to hell. How can some of them, if not most of us, not be thinking that we're doing something wrong when we have premarital sex, when we have been taught so strongly that it's a sin against God, post-traumatic sexual stress disorder. Then, in addition, we have this reprehensible suppression of female sexuality. It's almost indescribable, Tonio, what we have done to women, how we have put them down for their sexuality, how we put them down if they enjoy sex. If a guy runs around having a lot of sex when he's young, he's called a stud. Let a woman do the same thing, she's a whore or a slut. Or if you want to be more professional, a nymphomaniac or hypersexuality. Names that we give women for doing the same thing that a man would get applauded for. This has had an incredibly negative effect on the women of our culture. Indescribable negative effect. One of the people in my book tells us how there is the same relationship in orgasms between males and females as there is the relationship in money earning between males and females. Namely, we know two people in the same job in this country, a male and a female, equal training and merit and education. The men make a lot more money than the women, a lot more. Move over now to sexuality. Over 90% of the males in the country can orgasm, one of the greatest gifts that's been given to humanity. Orgasm, a feeling like no other. Once you have an orgasm, you don't have to read about it. Nobody has to tell you about it. You know that it's something distinct and different from every other human experience, this thing we call orgasm. Women are deprived. Somewhere between 30 and 40% of the women in the country orgasm. The rest don't. Why? Because female sexuality has been suppressed. Women are considered bad if they do that. 
or sinful or shameful or slutty. And that's built in from the time they're born in our culture. And that's what creates post-traumatic sexual stress disorder. And the men suffer from it as well. We are all suffering from it. And we are not all enjoying one of the greatest gifts that's been given to us that has the potential to heal us from some of the pain that we suffer as human beings, the anxiety and the depression. At the present time, post-pandemic, 30 to 40% of our brothers and sisters in America are suffering from anxiety and depression. How do you think that affects their sexuality? How do you think that affects their ability to enjoy this gift called orgasm that we have been given? So in answer to your question, I'm addressing in my career areas that I think need more attention by us professionals, be it diagnostic categories such as schizophrenia, which we gave up on and we tell the family they're incurable, to psychedelics that the government suppressed university research on for 50 years, thereby denying the public of the potential of these psychedelic substances, which research is indicating can do more good with one or two administrations than an entire year of what Big Pharma brings us with the SSRIs and the antidepressants that you have to take every single day of your life and which turns people too often into zombies. And you read stories about people on antidepressants who go to their mother's funeral and they don't cry because their feelings have been blotted over by these antidepressants, antidepressants. Almost anything that's called anti, I'm suspicious of, including anti-aging, by the way, but that's another whole topic. I love the way you think and your approach to these things. Very refreshing, and it mirrors my own approach and the way I think about all of these things. So getting back to sexuality and freeing sexuality, considering all the guilt and shame and mixed messages we have in our culture around sexuality, could you talk about the effect on children to begin with of the programming they get from teachers, parents, the media? And that includes a lot of mixed messages as well. And also the cultural expectations of children around sexuality. And then, of course, how we can actually best support them in having a genuinely healthy relationship with their own sexuality. Tonio, our views of sexuality as a culture are so far misguided and distorted. And there are so many people who hang on to religious beliefs about human sexuality. So many people that are opposed to education about sexuality. Book burning we have going on in our country. They're burning books that have certain content about human sexuality. That is what we're dealing with. Kids are growing up in a culture where on the one hand, at a very early age, since kids are computer savvy, at a very early age, they can witness sexual acts, the likes of which people in all of recorded history were not able to view. 
prior to this generation, the only people who witnessed human fornication were the very rich because they could hire people or the very poor because they live so close to one another. You have to know that people are, are having sex. But now anybody who can get on a computer can watch human beings doing all kinds of sexual acts. On the other hand, the kids are growing up where teachers and principals are getting fired for allowing courses on human sexuality. What this does to the young mind is it creates what's called cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance is when you have two opposing thoughts at the very same time. What do you do? You're with two friends. You're crossing a busy street in a very busy city with lots of traffic. One of your close friends says, cross here. And the other one says, don't cross here. What do you do? What do you do when you grow up and you're hearing sex is okay, sex is fun, respectful sex, consensual sex, have all you want, it's great. And then you're hearing, no, sex is sinful. Wait till you marry, and then only do one position, the position for procreation. Anything else, it's acting like animals. Don't do that. Where do kids learn? Let me ask your gentle listeners a couple of questions. Where did you learn about how to do sex? How did you know how to do sex when you first started? Do you think you know how to make love now? Or do you know how to fornicate? Did you learn sex from your parents? Did they give you education? If you're a man listening to this, did your parents teach you how to make love to a woman? How to be nice and soft and gentle? Did your parents teach you that? And if you're a woman listening, did your parents teach you how to make love and pleasure a man? I doubt it. Where did you learn? Where did you learn, listeners? Did you learn it in the schoolyard? Did you learn it on TV, watching Hollywood movies, where they go at it for a couple of minutes, ripping their clothes off, jumping around like rabbits, and then they jump off and smoke a cigarette? Is that what you learned? Or did you learn it with pornography, which is made by a bunch of men down in Los Angeles, which seems to portray women as having something done to them for the most part? Where did you learn how to make love? and enjoy it, and have a really good time with the person that you care about. Where do you learn? Do you go out and read a book? These are important questions, and these are the questions in answer to your question about the effects on the young. The effects are disastrous. That's why they grow up with hypocrisy-induced neurosis and post-traumatic sexual stress disorder. That's why such a high percentage of men in this country, including young men, have erectile dysfunction. Erectile dysfunction. What an interesting thing. We have an organ, which is sort of flops around, and then it's made so that when it gets sexually excited, it gets stiff enough to be able to penetrate a woman's vagina in order to inseminate eggs and create babies. That is part of what we have. We have fingers, we have toes, we have all kinds of things. 
the sexual organ is not ready to go all the time. In some animals, it is. We have a high percentage of men at every age group in this country who are not able to get their penis to get stiff. Or to put it another way, their penis doesn't get stiff. Whether they're able or not, they don't feel like they're in control of it. Can you imagine? I mean, those of you listening who suffer from this don't have to imagine. But what horrendous, what a horrendous disability this is to not have your penis work properly? What do you think it's like for these people, this high percentage of men? This is the answer to your questions. We are creating with our belief systems, with our distorted belief systems, we are creating dis-ease, lack of ease. I'm here to tell you that men who are suffering chronically from what's called erectile dysfunction, are aware of that dysfunction all the time. They're aware of it socially. How can you not be aware of it? And what do you do when you want to go out with a girl? What do you do when you want to get married? What do you do if you're already married and suddenly you come down with this affliction? And the good news and the bad news is that erectile dysfunction is not a physical inability or a physical disability. Erectile dysfunction is psychological. And that's really the big answer to your question about the effect on children. Because what the children are learning, for the most part, is so misguided and so distorted that a high percentage of the males will grow up with the inability to perform sexually and an even higher percentage of the females will grow up being unable to have one of the most blessed of all human events, an orgasm. And that's the life that they will live. And that's the answer to your question about the effect on the young people in our country. So how do we help children and adults to regain a healthy relationship with their own sexuality? As you mentioned, a lot of women have been psychologically damaged and conditioned to the point where they're not able to have orgasms. And at the same time, they feel obligated while they're taught to be ashamed of, of their sexuality. They're also taught to feel obligated to perform sexually for their men. And so they end up often faking the enjoyment of sex, or at least believing that they're supposed to enjoy sex to be able to offer it properly to their husband or their boyfriend. So how do we support people in having a healthy relationship with their own sexuality? Great question. Before I directly answer the question, I want to comment on something you said. You talked about how women fake it, which they do, because they want to please their man. Just imagine yourself faking your enjoyment of sex. How many weeks, months, years can a person go on making believe they're having an orgasm? What would it be like for those people listening to your program? What would it be like if they started having to fake enjoying their breakfast, their lunch, and their dinner? What would it be like on a hot day having to fake 
enjoying a glass of water. We're taking a human experience that all of us on the planet have the ability to share, and we've so suppressed and persecuted the females that they fake a human experience, and then they suffer the ignominy of walking around in the world knowing that they're faking. It's like a double cut. You get cut, maybe it's a triple cut. You get cut not having the pleasure. You get cut while you're faking it, knowing you're faking it. And then you get cut living with the fact that you're being dishonest with the closest person in the world about something important. Wow. And of course, women are also hearing stories from other women about how much they're enjoying it. So that's like the fourth cut. That's the fourth cut. Now, getting back to your question, what can we do about it? You're doing something about it, Tonio. You're broadcasting to the public. I'm doing something about it. I'm teaming up with you and talking about it openly. And your listeners are getting the experience of listening to an 85-year-old man who's been studying all this for 60 years and looking at it and working with people. And then I've got my book out, Freeing Sexuality, that you mentioned. And other people, we need more Tonios and more Richards spreading the word. That's the only thing that I know that will create cultural change over time is more and more of us need to speak up and speak our truths and not let those who would suppress us beat us down by calling us names. And that is what they do. They don't just call the women sluts and perverts. They'll call the men names too if they advocate the human sexuality. Perverts or any names they can think of because it's a negative force. They're on the wrong side of history, the people who are anti-sex and anti-psychedelics because they're anti. When you're anti, it often means you're trying to stop something in nature. It's like trying to dam up a river. The river keeps pushing away at the dam. And we keep pushing away at suppression by speaking up until things eventually change. Has there been change? Yes, it wasn't that long ago. Within the last hundred years, that over 90% of women waited until they were married to have sex. Nowadays, as I quoted earlier, I think 95, but certainly over 90% of the women in the country are having sex before marriage. So that's an example of change. It seems slow to us because our lifetimes are limited to what we call years, this thing we made up called time. And so we're on a short leash now that we've made up this thing called time, because all of us know that we're going to get like somewhere between 60 or 70 and maybe 100 years. But when you look at all this progress from the perspective of our bigger body called the planet, 100 years is nothing. 100 years isn't even a nanosecond. When you compare 100 years in a big body called the planet, to a billion years, a hundred years is nothing. So we get impatient. We want change faster, 
But part of that is because we've made up a particular kind of schedule called time and days and weeks and months and years that we live by. So how about telling us about Stella Resnick and her approach to emotional and sexual therapy and healing? Stella Resnick. I met Stella Resnick in a restaurant in North Beach in San Francisco, California in 1968, I believe it was. And we fell in love immediately and had a very uh, torrid courtship. And then we had a uh, really fun wedding. Not that either one of us wanted to get married, but we had a friend who wanted us to get married. And the friend said, you just show up and I'll do everything, all the food, everything, invite all the people. You two just show up and get married. So we were young in our 20s and we showed up and got married. And we had a very passionate marriage. It lasted less than a year because neither one of us wanted to be married to begin with. And we've maintained our friendship, sometimes with large spaces, sometimes not. Most recently, we've gotten pretty communicative again. And Stella has gone on to become one of the country's experts on human sexuality. So, of course, I interviewed her for my book, Freeing Sexuality. Stella is a sex therapist. And what that means is she works with people looking into what aspect of their emotions and their psychology are creating the obstacles to their enjoying their sexuality. So considering the kind of cognitive dissonance that people have around sexuality in general and their own direct relationship to sexuality, could you talk about the importance of genuine, vulnerable communication about our feelings and about what gives us pleasure and also how we can come to know what gives us pleasure in this culture that makes it so hard for us to even get there. Well, one of the things that Dr. Stella Resnick advocates for is for each person to get to know themselves and what feels good physically and by touch. Because it's her position that until we get to know what feels good, we're unable to communicate with openness and vulnerability. We're unable to communicate that to our partner. How can we tell our partner where to touch us if we ourselves don't know where the touch feels good? So Stella recommends full personal self-sexual exploration, touching ourselves, feeling ourselves, massaging ourselves, including our genitals. She's a believer in self-sex, which is referred to by some as masturbation, which is sort of an awkward word, but making love to yourself is easy to understand. It means touching yourself with softness and tenderness, or if you like, more rough touch, but learn to know what you like. And then after you personally know what you like and become good at giving yourself feelings that are enjoyable, then you can communicate 
in the way you describe, Tonio, with vulnerability and openness to the other person. You can say to them, please touch me here. Please lick me here. Please nibble on this. Don't be that hard. Or I like it a little harder. Or, oh, I just love it when you run your finger along my back. All those things that feel good. And different things feel good to different people. It's a part of our foreplay. I think that word foreplay is ridiculous, by the way. Foreplay is like, what, before the real thing because the real thing is penetration? Baloney. The real thing can begin at the dining room table. The real thing can begin in the kitchen. You can eroticize your environment anywhere. The real thing can begin in the car. There's no such a thing as foreplay. Makes me laugh, sort of like pre-orgasmic. It's like, can you be pre-pregnant? These words, whoever made them up, just cause us a lot of trouble. It's all play if you want to make it all play. It's all erotic if you want to make it erotic. It can begin by lighting candles in your bedroom instead of the powerful lights that we use. It can begin by turning off the television. It can begin by the two people sitting together and saying to one another, let's make a plan for how we're going to have a weekend of making love. Let's make a plan for a sexcation. Let's each write down some things that we'd like to have happen. Let's spend five or 10 minutes sitting here at the table together, and we'll each write down five or 10 things that we'd like to have happen, or more if you want, on our weekend sexcation. And then after we write our lists, let's share them with each other. Because what we will then do by ethical, mutual consent is we will do our best to give the other person what's on their list. So long, of course, as everything on their list is something that's not harmful, because if you're asking for something harmful, maybe you gotta find somebody else. But anything else, let's do it. And then for the weekend, we have a sexcation. So each person reads the other person's list, gives thoughts about it, and then on the Friday night, when they're going into their weekend sexcation, they begin. And they begin maybe in the kitchen, just touching each other lightly as they're walking around making the food, just looking at each other over the dinner or whatever. I'm not going to give them a prescription. Everybody's going to want to make up their own list. But you see what I'm saying? It doesn't begin with penetration or oral sex or anal sex. That's part of it, of course. But it begins when the two of you decide it begins. And from that moment on, you can eroticize anywhere and almost everywhere. I say almost because in our country, there are places where you can eroticize and get arrested. We don't want to advocate for that. So essentially, you're saying that we can make love all the time, in a sense. I am saying that we can make love all the time, for sure. Now, that is a high level to aspire to, but it can be done. Dr. Annie Sprinkle, who is also in my book, Freeing Sexuality, has a film out, and I think maybe a book, on what she and her partner Beth 
call echosexuality. Echosexuality is getting to that exalted high place where you make love to the wind, you make love to the ocean, you make love to the ground, you walk around when you turn yourself on into a heightened state of enjoyment of being alive. And that gratitude just for being alive allows us to also add sexuality within being alive. And we can turn ourselves on that way anytime, anytime we give ourselves permission. But that's a big order. That's a big order. But there is the possibility of enjoying almost anything to the degree that it gives us that kind of pleasure. Unquestionably, Tonio, unquestionably. And with the minds that we have, the things that we can create in our minds to add to the pleasure are beyond measure because we can picture anything that we want and we can think anything that we want. And fortunately, the government cannot stop us from thinking and picturing things in our mind. That has not been made illegal yet. But they've gotten pretty good at influencing the way we think. The influence is so great, Tonio, that I know that I am brainwashed. I know you are brainwashed. And I know both of us are struggling to free ourselves from the shackles of cultural brainwashing. Nobody gets away. Nobody gets away. Everybody is influenced. You turn on a television. Everything you see on television is influencing your views of people and your views of sexuality. Yeah. So let's talk about sexual identity and the fluid nature of the sexuality spectrum in contrast to our society's rigid notions of sexual identity and how our stories and beliefs can freeze us into set identities and how essentially our entire culture has been frozen into a very narrow set of sexual identities. Our culture in the past 2000 years, since the advent of Christianity, maybe going back further with the ancient Jews, has been enculturated to believe that human sexuality consists of a man and a woman and penetration. And the man is a man and the woman is a woman. And also monogamy. In the Western world, not in the rest of the world by any means, but in the Western world, monogamy is what has been put forth and adhered to by the church. That isn't what really is happening in practice, but that is the belief system. So the cultural push towards an identity is an identity of heterosexuality within the confines of monogamy. In fact, that is not how human beings are wired. We are wired as males to spread sperm. Females are wired to have babies, to ovulate, have eggs, and get them inseminated. There are tribes that live together where the women have sex with all the men in the tribe, and the men have sex with all the women in the tribe, and they raise all the children together. 
the Israelis have tried that, raising the children together with the kibbutz system years ago. We are wired to have sex. It's hard for people to hear what I'm about to say, but there's a significant percentage of people in the United States who, because of the culture, do not find other humans to have sex with, and they have sex with animals. It's a measurable percentage. And there are books written about it. Sexual identity is not something that's stamped into us. Sexual identity is something that we are taught. And some people have such a strong, different sexual identity than heterosexual monogamy that it's too painful for them and it's too awkward for them to practice heterosexual monogamy. And so they practice other forms of being with other human beings. And basically, we are tribal animals. Humans are tribal animals. And we do best when we live in small tribes. Because when we live in small tribes, we know each other, we help each other, we collaborate, we love eating together, we love doing all kinds of things together. And when the tribe is small enough, there's no such a thing as crime. It just doesn't happen because everybody has everything. So the Industrial Revolution really changed that. The tribes have been broken up. And now we're down to people trying to be a tribe of two. And what's the result? 50% of the marriages in the United States end up in divorce. Ask our listeners, how many of you would engage in anything if you had a 50% chance of failure? Like his friend says, let's go out in the ocean on my new boat. Oh, by the way, there's a 50% chance we won't come back. Would you go on that boat? Another friend says, oh, you know, I've been a pilot and I just was able to buy my own plane. Let me take you up for a ride. Oh, by the way, there's a 50% chance you won't make it back. Or suppose the commercial airline suddenly advertised, because of a change in the system, 50% of the people that get on our planes are not gonna land safely. Well, that's what young people are looking at when they consider marriage. Yeah, go ahead and do this thing. You're a heterosexual, find a person and get married. And by the way, 50% of you are gonna fail. Wow. So I think a certain percent are just naturally gonna say, hey, wait a minute. If this situation A, where you get married to one person, and you're monogamous, and 50% of the time I'm gonna fail, maybe I wanna look around for another option. Is there another way to live? Where maybe I could have a 75% chance of success? Or even 60? I don't like these 50-50 odds. Well, it also depends on how you look at it, because if you feel constrained by the religious injunction that you have to stay with that person that you married forever, until death do you part, then yeah, I would agree. That would be a, a daunting prospect. But nowadays, considering all the divorces and, and separations and people going on and, and having more monogamous or temporarily monogamous relationships, it's no longer a fatal proposition. I understand what you mean. It's no longer the way it used to be where once you got married, you were stuck and you had to be married forever. But at the same time, when you're starting out, even though you know you can get divorced, 
going into an endeavor with a 50-50 chance of failure, that doesn't sound like a great shot. I mean, would you invest in a business if you had a 50-50 chance of, of losing all your money? Well, actually, that's the way a lot of relationships are when you get married. You, you are in a kind of business relationship because when it fails, you can end up losing your financial well-being. You can lose your, your emotional and psychological sanity even. That's right. That's right. Because divorce has been constructed as a bad thing because not that long ago, no one got divorced. In my time, when I was a kid, was rare. It didn't happen that often. Now, as it's more acceptable, it has become adversarial. It's not as though you get together, you spend time together, you're in love. It doesn't work out for whatever reason. And there's a built-in plan for how you're going to exit. So you're going to exit as friends. That's what referred to in the military as an exit plan. That's what's referred to in business as an exit plan. You don't have an exit plan up front because you're sure it's going to go bad. You have an exit plan up front for protection because sometimes reality is such that you need an exit plan. But we don't have exit plans in our marriages. What we have is a construction where marriages end up dissolving by the people hiring guns called lawyers who fight each other extend it as much as possible because they make more money when the case drags on longer and the people go through what you just referred to as torment instead of two people saying we did this we loved each other it didn't work out and now we're parting as friends and maybe we'll even stay friends for the rest of our lives i have a situation like that in my own life kathleen de wilber who i had my daughter serana with whose birthday it is today Happy birthday, darling. And we had Serana, and then we decided some years later to stop living together. But we have remained friends for over 50 years. She may be one of them, if not my closest friend in the world. That's the way I would love it to be for everybody. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. I've been very fortunate to have very similar situations with all of my exes. Well, I'm not that fortunate because I have another situation where I have another daughter, Evacheska, and her mom and I don't talk to each other. And it's very painful. I certainly find it painful. And I think it's painful to a certain extent on our daughter. I'm sure she would be happier if we were close and friends the way I am with Serana's mother. And so I'm batting 50% on that. In, in baseball, that's a good batting average, but in life, it's not acceptable to me. Yeah. So let's talk about some of the other possibilities, other relationship possibilities with menage a trois and polyamory. And talking about menage a trois, could you give us an example? For example, you interviewed Letha Haddadi. Maybe you could talk about her experience. Well, I'm going to talk about it a little more globally than just hers, but I'll talk about her a bit. She was a Columbia University professor, and she was in a lifelong relationship with two other people. One was a male, one was a female. They lived in Manhattan. They did not live in the same apartment. They had two separate apartments, so they could take space where they wanted space. But they basically lived as what's referred to as a truffle. Two people as a couple, three people as a truffle. 
And she wrote that book that you referenced. It's in my book. Her book is called Three in Love. And she references famous people throughout history that have lived in menage a trois. And menage a trois is certainly a form of polyamory. And there's a movement that's growing in the United States now that's related to polyamory. It seems that 5% of the country is already practicing polyamory, meaning more than two people living together, sharing everything, sharing finances, often the cost of living, and in many cases, sharing children. I interviewed someone recently, David Jay, a man who is married to a couple. So the three of them are literally married, and the woman had a baby six years ago, and both males' names are on the birth certificate. So the young person literally has two legal fathers and one legal mother, and they are sharing everything. And now they have a second child, and they're raising the second child the same way. So they consider themselves polyamorous, but they're not a menage a trois. And the reason they're not a menage a trois, and there are these important differences, is David is not having sexual relations with either of the people in the couple. He is having amorous relationships. So they are polyamorous, but not polysexual. And the public doesn't know this yet. The public relates polyamory to having sex with a lot of people. But that isn't really the case, because polyamory really divides into two categories. A little group of people, let's say three, who are making love with each other, but it could also be what's called polyaffective. Polyaffective means having intimate feelings, romantic feelings, loving feelings, all the feelings that go with being in love with someone, but they don't have sex with each other because they're not sexually attracted. But they are polyamorous because they're in love with more than one person. And this is a very important distinction that the public needs to learn because the public's immediate reaction and what the culture has been taught is that polyamory means people who just like to f a lot of people. And that's just a put down and it's total nonsense because there are examples like I gave of David Jay and the couple he lived with where it's not a sexual relationship. And there are more examples of that. And part of why that's going on is economics. It's not just trying new things because marriage is failing. That's one of the reasons. But another reason to try new things is economics. It's getting too expensive for two people, a male and a female, or two females and two males. It's too expensive to live, even making a decent living. It's getting too expensive in many big cities just to live. And so it's economically more sound to share the financial load of living with three or four or five people and live together as a family and all love each other and all support each other and all be intimate with each other, but not necessarily having sexual relations with one another. And there's another wonderful benefit of that, and that is that at this point, we're expecting and counting on a single partner in a monogamous relationship to fulfill all of our relationship needs and desires, which is 
ridiculous. It, it's yeah, it's exceedingly difficult and rare. Oh, it's impossible. No one person can do it all. And that's a very astute point you're making. And by the way, in terms of the effect on children, Dr. Ellie Schiff has done an incredible 20-year longitudinal study researching children of polyamorous relationships. And what she has found is they do better than the average children. And her theory is the reason they do better than the average children is they have more adults to turn to in times of physical and emotional need. And the children learn which of their various parents is good at what particular thing, and they go to that parent for that particular thing that that parent is good at. And so they grow up with additional emotional support, and it makes them stronger people. I think that's a fascinating theory. Oh, yeah, that's wonderful. And a lot of this boils down to figuring out what works for our own unique combination of needs and desires, and then perhaps we can actually design and create our own unique kind of relationship to fulfill that. Right. And for example, you mentioned the movie Design for Living, which is an old Hollywood. It's amazing how that film got through censorship. But I watched that while reading your book. And I can see how if you weren't thinking along these lines, you might miss that aspect of the movie. But that's really what that movie was demonstrating, was that People can come to realizing a different way of fulfilling their needs and desires than the standard model of, of a monogamous relationship. And I also stumbled upon an old French film while reading the book titled Kung Fu Master, and that's referencing the title of a video game that a 15-year-old boy loves to play. And in this film, there's this 40-something-year-old woman who falls in love with this 15-year-old boy who happens to be a friend and schoolmate of her daughter. And it seems the French are a lot more progressive about these kind of things, that they can tell stories like this, create a movie like this, and it can be a sweet thing, not a scandalous and kind of like a psychological horror story like we always do out of these kind of things. Europe is miles ahead of us with regard to attitudes about human sexuality. The Arab countries are miles behind us, and South America is overridden with distorted Catholicism. The most advanced countries on the planet with regard to human sexuality are the Scandinavian countries, and they always have been. I would say they come the closest to relating to human sexuality as the same as breathing, drinking water, eating food, you know, eliminating, it, they, they, it's just part of the human condition. And they seem to have, they do have the most refreshing, and you might say the most natural perspective. And we might be at the bottom of the barrel with regard to human sexuality. And that's in part because we're only a couple of hundred years old and the Europeans have had you know, hundreds if not thousands of years to figure it out. And they're still pretty repressed because of religion, but they're definitely ahead of us. The French and the Germans are definitely ahead of us. The English are about as uptight as we are. 
And we come from a lineage, you know, from the Puritans who embody the most anti-sexual approach to life. What the English did with colonizing the United States or the colonies, as they called them, is the same thing that Fidel Castro did when he took over Cuba. He sent all the people that he didn't want out of mental institutions and out of prisons, and he sent them to the United States. It was a fascinating thing to do, and very few people have really looked at the implications of sending thousands of people like that, if not tens of thousands of people, sending them all to one place. It's no wonder that, for example, Miami in the 70s and 80s and 90s was the cocaine capital of the world. But the English basically did the same thing. They sent us these people who were so puritanical, they were a major pain, and they got rid of them by sending them over here. So yes, we are descended. I mean, George Washington, who was known privately as an excellent dancer, was also known to never dance in public because he was concerned that those who saw dancing as sinful would be critical of him. So let's talk about sex workers and what we unaffectionately refer to as prostitutes. And it's interesting that the term whore originally meant beloved one. So talk about our relationship, our cultural relationship with prostitutes and sex workers, particularly considering of work that they do and the benefit. And when you really think about it, it's a really wonderful service that they provide to many people, particularly men. It's an extraordinary service, and it's also ridiculously hard work. Well, it's not for everybody, but I actually interviewed a young woman who got involved in the sex trade when she was going to the London School of Economics. And she was a, a high-class call girl, but she loved what she did, being able to not only give pleasure to them, but also to give them psychological and emotional sustenance and create a space in which they could just truly and honestly be who they were, which is something that many of them were unable to do within their own families, let alone the rest of the world. A person like that is way at the top of the class, and they're very unusual. They get paid so much for one night that they don't really have to work the other nights of the week. But your average sex worker might be seeing somebody, if not every day of the week, they might be seeing three or four people every day of the week. And just picture that. It's one thing to enjoy sex, and a lot of sex workers do, and a lot of sex workers don't. But no matter how much you enjoy something, there is a limit. You can enjoy sex, but that doesn't mean you're going to want to have sex with six guys four days a week. That's 24 men. But more importantly, or equally important, is to look at it historically. Men, for the last couple of thousand years, if not longer, have ruled the roost. It wasn't that long ago in this country that women were not allowed to own property, and it wasn't that long ago that women were not allowed to vote. Women were chattel. Women were basically owned. And historically, since women were owned, that means men could buy them and men could sell them. And so a man 
could buy a woman sexual favors. That makes a woman a sex worker. At the same time, as men created this industry, the women who are the workers have been put down by almost all of society for most of recorded history. I say most because there have been periods, particularly in Italy, in recorded history where courtesans had high status, but it's rare. And in Japan, the number one wife sometimes had high status over 10 to 20 or 30 courtesans, but that's with the uber rich. But for the most part, the women have been put down and called these names and their children have been treated terribly. Hardly anybody ever thinks about the children of sex workers and how they're treated at school by other kids who know what their mothers do. So on the one hand, you have men seeking these women and paying them money, anything from a little tiny bit at a truck stop to 10,000 a night. And they're being, on the one hand, put down by the public, on the other hand, exalted by the men who hire them. But what kind of lives do they have behind that once they have children? Look at the stories in my book. A porn actress decides to retire. She's got three kids. Her kids go to school and they get bullied and put down for their entire school career because anybody in school can turn on a video and see their mother doing sex acts. And that's bad rather than that's good. What a great thing. She's making a living. The male control of money has therefore controlled sex work and the religiosity towards the sex worker has put them at the bottom of the barrel of occupations in the culture. And so they are tormented. And while it is true that you'll hear from a certain percentage of sex workers, oh, what a cool thing, you know, I get laid and I get paid for it. That cavalier attitude doesn't really float very long. How many years do you want to do that? And can you maintain that attitude? How many years can you have sex with strangers day in and day out and night in and night out and maintain the attitude of, oh, what about a bunch of fun? Some people can, but they're rare. The rest are just doing their best to make any kind of living they can in order to get by economically. That's really what's going on. And I wanted to expose this and also expose the terrible things that are happened to the children of sex workers because of their mother's occupations and the culture's attitudes towards their mothers and their mother's occupations. It seems as though this is a continuation of a kind of male dominance. And if they can't own women like they used to, that they will make it so that women cannot enjoy their own self-ownership. That is absolutely correct. I couldn't have said it any better. So let's talk about the realm of consent, what it is and why it's so important and the consequences of denying another human being the choice to consent or not. And we largely think of this in the realm of sexuality, but it actually extends into every area of our lives. The consent topic is a very brief topic. Anything less than mutual consent is aggression or rape. End of sentence. Anything less than mutual consent 
is aggression, assault, or rape. And it really doesn't matter whether it's about sex or it's going to the movies or it's doing a certain kind of job. If there isn't mutual consent, then there has to be some kind of force, aggression, or assault, or rape. Mutual consent is basic to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Mutual consent is basic to living in a republic where no one is above the law. Mutual consent is foundational. And if somebody hesitates, even if they don't say no, if they hesitate about anything, that also should be understood as a clear lack of consent. Here's how clear it is, Tonio. Anything less than yes from a person who is sober, anything less than yes is not mutual consent. And I added from a person who's sober, because a yes from a person who's been drugged or drunk is not a yes. So you might add sober mutual consent. Anything less than a full yes is not mutual consent and is therefore going to take force, force of aggression, force of assault, or force of rape. There's also the element of a lot of women are, have been conditioned to say yes when they actually mean no, particularly around sex. Well, now you're talking about something a lot more complicated, and that's very difficult because you have to take a person at their word, and if you ask a person a question in a normal, gentle, civil tone of voice, do you want to make love with me, or whatever you want to say, and you get a yes, a yes is a yes. Now, if you ask your question with the slightest threat behind it, with the agenda behind it, as in, if you don't say yes, you're going to be in big trouble, or if you don't say yes, I'm going to get aggressive, or if you don't say yes, something not good is going to happen to you, well, then the yes is not an honest yes, then we were talking about a whole different situation. But of course, the tone of voice with which the question is asked is extremely important. It's critical. Otherwise, we'd allow people to be asking the question just the way I just posed it, you know. You ask the question, but it's pretty obvious to the person listening, they don't really have a choice or something bad's going to happen. Yeah. And it's interesting how in the world of BDSNM, there's a very strong culture of consent. Well, I would say more than anybody, they better have consent built in because they do things which are potentially physically harmful. Yes. In fact, they would be considered harmful to many of us. Uh-huh. But I that, agree. But then that, again, is an example of the broad range of sexual possibility. That's all it is. And it's a very small percentage of the population. But again, if they have mutual consent, even my profession of psychology, which can be conservative at times, agrees that anything that two adults do with mutual consent is acceptable and not perverted. So if the two people agree that the only way they're going to make love is standing on their heads in the kitchen, then that's normal enough for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you interviewed Laura McGuire, and she has 
some what I would consider very sane ideas about teaching consent to kids early in their lives. But that's entering into a very difficult situation in this country where there are many parents who don't want any aspect of sexuality being taught to their children. The way to teach consent is not to relate it to sex. The way to teach children even before they go to school about consent is to make it more global, as I did before. Anything that you're asked to do or anything you ask another human person to do has to be by mutual consent. If both people don't say yes, if you say to your friend, let's go to the schoolyard, and your friend doesn't say yes, your friend says, I'm not sure, you do not then push your friend to the schoolyard. You accept anything less than a yes as a no, and you start teaching your kids that right away. You don't need to address sex in order to do it. What you do is teach the basic principle of what people do together, they do by mutual consent. You don't force assault another person with your tone of voice or with bodily motion or with an instrument. You do not force another person or persuade harshly. You can debate, you can discuss, but you don't take forceful action because that's not mutual consent. Yep. So talk about pornography and alternative pornography as, as a kind of mirror of our society and its issues and problems with sexuality, and also as a kind of political activism. Well, to begin with, what we see in pornography, in a way similar to what we see in Hollywood, are the ideas of a small group of people who make movies of human action. And so whether it's a Hollywood movie and somebody writes a script and that's their idea and they make a movie out of it, or in pornography, somebody writes a script and a great deal of what it's based on is what they think is going to sell. That's true for Hollywood as well as for pornography. In pornography, in addition, there's a great deal of pressure on how much it's going to cost to make. And there's a great deal of pressure on producing as many different films as possible to keep the public looking, because otherwise they'll be looking at the same old stuff over and over again. And so these men sit around, some women now, and dream up these little scenes. And for the most part, as I said earlier, when you look at pornography, you see men doing things to women. I won't get too graphic, but it's basically men doing things to women. And they believe that's what sells. And they're right, because as it turns out, men are more interested in looking at pornography than women. There's a percentage of women that dig pornography, but it's not as large as the percentage of males. So the market is basically made up for males. And the people are hired in the same way that baseball players are hired. You hire a baseball player to hit if he can hit a ball that's thrown at him with a stick and hit it in such a way as he can run to a certain place before other people can throw that ball to the person guarding that particular place. That's why they're hired. So in pornography, the males are hired for their being able to provide either 
a large erection, a big penis, or maintain that erection for however long the film goes. And the women are hired for their looks and sometimes for their abilities to do sexual acts. Naturally, they're going to hire people who are going to be the most interesting to look at, the best-looking bodies, the biggest penises for public consumption. In Hollywood, they hire the people who look the prettiest, the sexiest, and the handsomest, according to cultural norms. When people watch pornography, and they don't know much about sex, or even when they do know a little bit, and they look at these people, they don't realize they're basically looking at Olympic athletes, or they're looking at phony tricks that are used to make them look like Olympic athletes. And then they compare themselves to these men. So how many times has a patient of mine asked, how can these guys go so long and I come in three minutes? Well, if you interview thousands of guys, eventually you'll find certain men who take longer just by natural selection. Or maybe they take some drug that gets them to stay longer before having an orgasm. The comparisons are ill-conceived. It's not healthy for the public to say, if I can't throw the ball the way a professional player, why should I play baseball? If I can't ski the way these people on TV ski, why should I ski? I can't do that. The comparison game, people come away feeling put down. That's a really bad thing emotionally. Really bad. Now, there is a movement going on. And Paulette Papel in Paris, who is in my book, is doing a different kind of pornography. She's doing pornography with average people, with average looks, with average-sized breasts, with average-sized penis, making love rather than doing what the porn people do, which I call sport f***ing. And so she is showing what normal active sexual people do when they make love. And I don't even know if it should be called pornography, but there is a small movement going on. There is a small movement going on of women making sex films from the women's perspective, where the woman doesn't come away being put down. And at the end of the movie, the guy on her face. I mean, so many of these porn movies seem to be degrading of women. This whole thing of choking a woman while you're making love to her that they're doing on pornography. I'm 85 years old. I've made love with a certain amount of women in my life when I was single. I don't, I've never run into a woman who asked me to choke her. I'm not saying there aren't some women out there who would like to be choked, but they got to be pretty damn rare. But you look at the pornography, it looks like that's the way to go. Part of what you do when you make love is you choke your girlfriend or you come on her face. Ah, that. That is selling. That's selling a particular method of making love. And it's a distortion. It's a simple distortion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it's been great to talk with you. And it's a wonderful book. I mean, it's a highly enlightening and wide ranging book on this wonderful topic of freeing sexuality. Thank you, Tonio. It's been great working with you. Let's do it again sometime. It would be my pleasure. Well, reach out. I'm here and I'm available. I'm here to serve. That's my function. Well, thank you very much. Terrific. Take care. You too. 
Bye-bye. Bye-bye. My guest has been Richard Lewis Miller. He's been a clinical psychologist for more than 50 years. He's the host of the podcast Mind, Body, Health, and Politics and the founder of the nationally acclaimed Coke Enders Alcohol and Drug Program and the Health Sanctuary at Wilbur Hot Springs in Northern California. He's a former faculty member at the University of Michigan and Stanford University and an advisor on the President's Commission on Mental Health. He's the author of Psychedelic Medicine and Psychedelic Wisdom, and his new book that we've been talking about is Freeing Sexuality, Sex Workers, Psychologists, Consent Teachers, and Polyamory Experts Speak Out. It's five o'clock in the morning, the conversation got boring, you said you'd go into bed soon, so I snuck off to your bedroom. Just wait there Until I heard you come up the stairs And I pretended I was sleeping And I was hoping you It's five o'clock in the morning Let me whisper in your ear how you like your sex Should I unzip your dress? Step on out, girl, and tell me what's next Do you love me? Do you want me? Let me rub this oil all on your face Take you out of them victims, make you forget it's about your It's five o'clock in the morning Round two, let's roll some crack Get high, think about it and I wanna try you on, let me pop your teeth Just like I thought you ran out of gas And girl, you like the new S class Every time I look at you, I wanna smash Get inside you and smash You drive me crazy, girl, I can It's five o'clock in the morning
She knows what to say and how to say It's five o'clock in the morning She tempts me, I'm a gas pump Fill her up when she empty I wanna taste her, she lets me Sweet like cake, she tastes like little Debbie's And it's not about my money, I'm her honey Now come to me, my bumblebee She's so gorgeous, she's like a walking portrait Mona Lisa should be jealous of her
veux et je viens Entre tes reins Je vais et je viens Je me retiens Non, maintenant, viens And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other.